Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. I'm going to talk, since we're all pumped up and excited, you know, Mike's got us all stirred up, I'm going to just do this great happy message on hell tonight. Uh, I really am, huh? <laughs> What'd you say? Um, miss, miss hell if you just do what Mike's talking about. Uh, I actually, uh, I got a message from Tony Cook today linking me to, uh, actually I think I got it yesterday, linking me to a message that he wrote about hell. And I'm going to read you a large portion of it before I move into some other stuff. In fact, let me just uh, dive into this. Uh, if a, and this is all Tony Cook until I tell you I'm done reading Tony Cook. And I'm going to try to read this fast, so listen fast. If a bridge is out and someone puts up a sign informing me of that, is that a negative thing? Does a person really love me if he sees me heading toward a catastrophe and neglects to warn me? Make no mistake about it, the calling and assignment of a minister is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus directs his original disciples, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. In the very next verse, though, The very next verse, though, is most sobering. Jesus proceeds to say, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. We all rejoice over the gospel. That is our message. For God so loved the world uh, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is good news indeed. But did Jesus muddy the waters when he also brought up the fate of those who reject the gospel? If we encourage people to follow Jesus and to study his words, they are going to hear several warnings from his very lips. For example, uh, Jesus told a gripping story about a man who went to hell. In that story, the man pleads for Abraham to send a messenger to his father's home. For I have five brothers, he said, and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. I need to uh, stop here just for a second. Uh, this isn't Tony now. This is me. Uh, that, the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that from the Gospels, right? Very important uh, that, to, to know. I, I am firmly convinced that that's not a parable. Every time Jesus told a parable, it says, then Jesus told this parable. And he would say, a certain man, a certain woman. In this, it says, he, he began to tell the disciples and he says nothing about a parable, and he names a guy. He doesn't say a certain man. He says Lazarus. And it talks about the rich man and Lazarus in a very real situation in the afterlife where they could see one another. Here's Lazarus enjoying the presence of, of Abraham's bosom, and then here's the rich man in hell. And he says, I'm tormented by these flames. Send Lazarus over here to cool my tongue. Let him dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Uh, please, let somebody go back and warn my... Uh, my, my brothers, I don't want them to come to this place. Uh, so Jesus is affirming that hell is a place of torment and that it's a real place. Now, back to Tony. Stern words came from the mouth of Jesus when he said, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus issued another warning in Matthew uh, chapter 11. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. These are just a few of the warnings Jesus issued to those who rejected God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said more about hell than any other person in the Bible. And yet, he was and is the greatest expression of love ever known or revealed to man. 
Vance Habner relates, when I pastored a country church, a farmer didn't like the sermons I preached on hell. He said, preach about the meek and lowly Jesus. I said, that's where I got my information about hell. (laughs) Was Jesus just selling fire insurance? Did Jesus threaten people in a way that is contrary to the gospel or the love of God? No. True love warns people if it sees them heading toward destruction. Unfortunately, some grew up in a church setting that was predominantly negative, and seemingly at every, every message was one of turn or burn. Others have expressed that they were constantly beat over the head about, uh, about their sins and were continually condemned from the pulpit. That is regrettable, and it is certainly not what I'm advocating. People need to be loved, encouraged, edified, comforted. People need to be fed the good word of God. However, we must not go from one ditch, from one extreme, to another. If we have seen inappropriate and imbalanced presentations of hell... This does not give us permission to ignore and omit what the New Testament actually teaches about it. Let's explore a few examples from Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. For example, Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. I encourage you to read this entire message, but the good news he presents is clear. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. Uh, Some believed, but eventually others rejected Paul's message and actually opposed him. Consider the response. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. Let's skip down here. Uh, Another example from Paul's ministry in Acts involves a Roman government official named Felix. You guys probably remember this. We were there not too long ago. This leader had some knowledge about the way, and Paul's conversation with him and his wife is very interesting. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Jesus Christ. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. (laughs) When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. Isn't it interesting that Paul's overall topic of conversation was about faith in Christ and that this conversation eventually led to him discussing the coming day of judgment? Again, I don't think that Paul was threatening Felix, but he was telling him the truth. All that Paul told him pertained to faith in Christ. I propose that Paul makes it very clear he felt a strong duty to warn We can see this in two statements he makes regarding the blood of others. Consider these two statements he makes. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. Uh, That was in Acts chapter 18. In Acts 20, he says, Therefore I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. To the modern reader, I'm, I'm just about to wrap this up. To the modern reader, the terminology Paul uses might seem very strange. What does he mean when he says that he is innocent of the blood of others? To appreciate Paul's perspective, it is helpful to consider what God communicated to the prophet Ezekiel about his duty to warn. This will be familiar to you too. Son of man, this is from Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. The same principle is reiterated uh, later on in Ezekiel. And Paul applied this same principle of responsibility to himself and his own ministry. Then he goes on to share uh, what many of you have heard, and you can look this up on your own for the sake of time. He shares, uh, Brother Hagen had an experience where he uh, uh, believes that he saw hell personally, actually went there when he died. 
and uh, was brought back. And I'm, but now I'm going I'm to end up this with, a, with several quotes from uh, very famous ministers about the subject of hell. William Booth, who is, of course, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this. I, this may be my favorite one, and I'm going to start with it. Most Christian ministries would like to send their recruits to Bible college for five years. I would like to send our recruits to hell for five minutes. That would do more than anything else to prepare them for a lifetime of compassionate ministry. William Booth also said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Spurgeon, I got three Spurgeon quotes here. The first one is this. It is a very remarkable fact that no inspired preacher of whom we have any record ever uttered such terrible words concerning the destiny of the lost as our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another great Spurgeon quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion, uh, exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Spurgeon, another uh, final one from Spurgeon here. Think lightly of hell, and you will think lightly of the cross. Think little of the sufferings of lost souls, and you will soon think little of the Savior who delivers them. Here's one from C.S. Lewis. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by the Christian church and it has the support of reason. Uh, Wearsby, Warren Wearsby said this. A group of servicemen asked their new chaplain if he believed in real hell for lost sinners. And he smiled and told them that he did not. Then you are wasting our time, the men replied. If there is no hell, we don't need you. And if there is a hell, you are leading us astray. Either way, we are better off without you. And Billy Graham said, No one spoke more about hell than Jesus did. And the hell he came to save men from was not only a hell on earth, it was something to come. And finally, a longer one from Greg Laurie. Many people have reacted to the hellfire and brimstone preaching, as it is called, and said, well, I don't like that kind of preaching. But frankly, I can't remember the last time I heard a hellfire and brimstone preacher. We've swung so far to the other side that we've lost sight of the importance of what Scripture says, that we need to warn some, and they need to know there are consequences for their sin. To leave that out is to do them a disservice. And it is to fail to declare the whole counsel of God. We certainly shouldn't do it in a gleeful manner, but with compassion and love and warning them that the last thing God wants is for any person created in his image to end up separated from him in this place called hell. Isn't that good stuff? Now in light of that, I want to share with you, I'm going to read to you a longish portion of scripture. <laughs> it's not long, uh, but it is Psalm 34. And then, then we'll move to some, some remarks and some uh, shorter passages, all right? Are you still with me? Psalm 34. And you're going to think, what's this? It doesn't have anything to do with hell, but it does. Psalm 34, a lot of this can be very familiar to you. There's songs uh, in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. I'm beginning in verse 1. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around, uh, all around those who fear him and delivers them. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who hear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Man, you got this beautiful, all this language that just gets you excited about how good God is. And there's right there in the middle of this a reminder that God is against evil. And he, he, he's going to terminate it. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That bit, that there, uh, that's really important. You should highlight verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves as such, as such as have a contrite spirit. That's important to recognize because he's not just saving and doing good for those whose lives are perfect. That person doesn't exist. What's a super important ingredient to receiving favor of God is that your sin should bother you. Right? Remember, remember back, I think I just referred to this recently, uh, something we read uh, uh, several, several months ago when we were in the prophets in Ezekiel, when, when he gets this vision of the, the men coming into the city to destroy it, put a, uh, to put a mark on the heads of everyone in, in, in Jerusalem who sighs and cries over the sin and the wickedness in the city. These people who were there in the midst of all this wickedness, the, the thing that saved them was just that it bothered them. Okay? So, many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. And there are, there are several verse, uh, several psalms right here in this section. Psalm 37 is another one, but it's much longer, where he talks about the protection and the favor of the righteous and the condemnation and the elimination of the unjust, of the wicked. C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, The Great Divorce. How many of you have read that book? But there's a great conversation in this book. It's, a lot of it is one long conversation. But he said this, and one of the, he has one of his characters, and I believe it was George MacDonald, said this in the book. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Those who are in hell are those who insist upon their own way, self-determination, and God finally says to them, thy will be done. Here's the thing. Deep down, I am convinced people know it. They know that this life is not all there is. There is an innate understanding in them that, there's, that, that we are going to have to answer for the choices we make in this life. The, uh, the only reason people are able to live like they don't believe it, and I think scripture bears this out, I'm going to show you here in a second, is because they are suppressing knowledge of the truth. It's not that they don't know, it's that their desires, their sinfulness, their flesh uh, have, allowed, have caused them and they've trained themselves to simply suppress the knowledge that God put in them. Romans chapter 1, remember? 
very quickly, I'll just read it here. So the wrath, of, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. They know it's manifest in them, but they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Up against that, you've got Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And that's where I kind of want to shift this thing. God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And that's one of the things I th- That and the verse in Romans, I think, are two scriptures that speak very clearly to the fact that we know. We believe in eternity. We, we are made to believe in it. It's such an obvious thing. God has put it in us. He's revealed it to us with the things that he has made. Right? And yet in this verse, no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. What's that saying? That there's something in us that recognizes that eternity is real, but we can only see a slice of it. What is that slice called? Our lifetime. And our lifetime is measured in time. Hours, minutes, seconds, days, weeks, months, and years. But there's this tension, I believe, because while we are accustomed, since we are time-bound, we understand time, we get it, and yet there's eternity in our hearts. We just can't see the beginning from the end. God does. God doesn't have a past, present, and future. He's just eternally now. Everything just is. I am, is what God said. Not I was and am and will be, although that's, that's how he describes it to us. It's all, his name is I am. He always just am. All right? There are uh, what we discover, though, as we live out this slice of eternity called our lifetimes, and we discover this as we get older, is that life is short. There are dozens of verses in the Bible about that, about the shortness of our lives, the, the quick passing of time. I'll just read a handful of them to you. I'll just let you throw those up there. It'll save us a little more time. Psalm uh, 144, uh, verse 4, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Uh, Job chapter 8, verse 9, For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Psalm 102, verse 11, My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. Psalm 103, verse 15. As for a man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Uh, Verse 16. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. And James chapter 4. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then vanishes away. And I'm not trying to depress you. All right, God has promised us a long life, right? With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. That's good. I did a funeral message uh, not too long ago. Uh, buried the brother of an old friend after I had buried my old friend six months before. This, this guy, I almost said this kid. He'll be a kid in my mind. He's 50 years old. And uh, if you think 50 is old, you're really young. 50's young. And, and the, this is one of the things the family was, was lamenting. He was just so young to go. But one of the things I said in this message to a group of what I'm convinced were largely unbelievers is that they wouldn't have been any more ready if he was 80. We fight. Uh, death is something that we just are never prepared for, for our own or for anybody else's. We can prepare in terms of, hey, I know where I'm going. 
We don't need to fear it. But it's something we just aren't reconciled to. Why? Because we were made for life. The Bible itself, Jesus describes death as an enemy. Now it's something we are going to pass through. And death doesn't mean, you know, we don't die a real death. You know, Jesus died the real death. It's the shadow of death that passes over us. But it's still something we have to go through. Barring uh, the return of Christ or the rapture, we are going to die. That's how we get from here to there. And that, but it's, what we're, it's not what we were created for. We weren't created for death. We were created for life. So we wrestle against it. I submit to you that it's the same thing with time. We were created for eternity. Right? Here's another great C.S. Lewis quote. Before, before I get there, you know, we've got this, uh, this idea you know, they, to, when we talk about the passage of time and, and, and how our, uh, our view of it, our perspective on it changes as we get older. And yet, just like death, time is a universal. It's something that's common to all of us. You know, when you think about that, of the billions of people who have lived and who are living, everybody's going to die. And yet what? We still mourn and weep and wail. It's, we, again, we just can't, we can't accept it. And we do. We get over it. We move on. But it's the same thing with time. We're amazed. Let, let me just go ahead and read this quote. Then I'll, then I'll, then I'll save my comments till after it. This is what he says. And this is in his Reflections on the Psalms. This is Lewis again. We are so little reconciled to time that we are even astonished at it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies, as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. You think it's weird that a fish would think, boy, this water's wet. Boy, this water's wet. You live in water. This is, what you, this is what you're bound in. But if there was something in the fish that just knew this wasn't what he was created for, this is, how, this is why we react to time the way that, wow, t- where is life going? T- it's, t- it's just going faster and faster. The years are spinning by. Where does the time go? Why? Because we were created for eternity. Even though we're bound in time, even though it's all we've ever known, something in us knows we were made for a timeless existence. And where and with whom? In heaven with God. This is who we were created for by the one who created us, for himself. Augustine said, you've made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is where we are supposed to find ourselves. And that ought to be enough if you could give somebody a taste of the presence of God and simply say, follow Christ, submit your life to him because it is what you were made for. But that's only part of the gospel message according to Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who said, and those who disbelieve will be damned. It's not a fashionable message in this day and age. Do you really believe in hell? Yes, I do. I am not, as I've told you many times, I've said this many times during an altar call, I'm not interested in slicing and dicing and telling you exactly what hell is like. I can only tell you what Scripture says. Do I, uh, but same thing with heaven. I, I get very uncomfortable 
I get hinky when somebody tells me they went to heaven and they saw this. Number one, because no people ever, no two people ever seem to see the same two things. And partly because I am firmly convinced, I don't have this from the Lord. Maybe I do have this from the Lord. It's something that's so firmly entrenched in my heart that I believe I did get it from the Lord, but I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord. I'll just put it this way. If heaven is something that you, in your time-bound, finite self, can explain to my time-bound, finite self in such a manner that I can understand it perfectly, then heaven ain't all that. Heaven is so far beyond you and so far beyond me. I think it is, at this point in our lives, literally indescribable. I think when you see what John writes in the Revelation, what he saw of heaven and Jesus himself, what we are seeing is, a, an effort on the part of John to describe what he saw, but he only has human terms at his disposal. Are they literally pearls? Are the gates really pearls? It doesn't say pearly gates. It says pearls. How big are they? And were they literal pearls? Is the street literal gold? Are the buildings literal jewels? I kind of don't think so. I think he's seeing something. The only way I can do it'd be like... Imagine the biggest building you ever saw, only it's made of diamonds and sapphires and pearls and whatever. I think that's all he had at his disposal was, was just these, the highest the expressions of human, uh, that humans could understand of beauty. I think it's something bigger and better. I think there are colors that we haven't seen. I've told you before, I think we'll be able to see the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, we'll be able to hear things. You know, you know, certain animals can hear in different frequencies. I think we'll be able to hear it all. I think there's music notes. I think there's things that, that, that are quite literally indescribable. I think heaven is better than you can imagine. But I think hell is worse. Is it literal flames that burn you day and night for eternity? I don't know. I'm just saying Jesus used that term for a reason. When he said that on a certain day after the final judgment... Those who have rejected him, God will cast into the lake of fire that he prepared, not for these people, but for the devil and his angels. Now there are some, and then there's some who say, well, but if you look at the word Gehenna, it means trash heap. And if you look at, you know, I just, I just uh, mentioned Psalm 37. If you read it, what it talks about a lot is destruction. And people will take these verses and say, see, it's not eternal torment, it's uh, annihilation. Personally, I don't think so because, again, the most vivid picture that Jesus paints is with the rich man and Lazarus, and this guy is suffering torment. Second, you weren't made for annihilation either. If you want to get philosophical about it, would it be better to be blinked out of existence rather than be burned alive forever? Yeah, it would, okay? I admit that. It's not what you were made for. You were made to live forever. This is, what, this is God's desire for you. It's God's desire for me. It's what Jesus died for, to give you eternal life. But he's the only way. And it's not a cheap scare tactic to remind people of the existence of hell. We are to live the gospel and preach the gospel. The whole gospel. And when we talk about the full gospel, we usually mean, hey, we believe in speaking in tongues and healing the sick and, and uh, prophecy and all this. And yeah, that's part of the full gospel. But part of the full gospel that Jesus specifically told them to preach. Those who disbelieve will be damned. It's not God's will for anybody. But he's not going to force anybody 
to follow him. He's not going to force anybody into hell. But he's going to give them that choice and say to them on that day, your will be done. Is it good news? Is the gospel good news? Yes, it is. But it's going to be bad news for those who reject it. I'm going to read you one final verse here. Psalm 90, verse 12 says this. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days. Uh, a, A less poetic version of that verse says, help us to organize our time, make the most of our time. But I think uh, in keeping with the rest of that psalm and and certainly with the rest of this message, I think a good way of looking at it is let's appreciate the fact that we don't have an infinite amount of time this side of eternity to do the things that Jesus commanded us to do. He commanded us to preach the gospel, including the message of hell, and we don't have forever to do that. It doesn't mean, let me be clear about this, it doesn't mean that we get out there, I've told you the stories, and many of you remember the the campus preacher who would just get out there and you just seemed to love telling people that they were going to go to hell for being in a fraternity or a sorority or whatever. Fire was his favorite word. You remember that guy, Todd? Fire! This guy just seemed to revel in it. We shouldn't. We shouldn't rejoice in anybody going to hell. And we don't need to open with that. Okay? But if they ask, man, we absolutely cannot be afraid to tell them, yeah, I happen to believe hell is real. And let me tell you why. Because the Jesus that I've been sharing with you is the one who told me about it. He doesn't want that for you. I don't want that for you, but it really is real. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.